the book of Ruth, the beautiful book of Ruth. Well, stop. Change my mind. Go to Matthew chapter 5 first. You know it's in Matthew chapter 5, right? It's the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's one of five sermons that he gives in the book of Matthew. I want to look at the Beatitudes. We know the Beatitudes, right? So let's read uh, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, verses 3 through 11. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Interesting statements, aren't they? Statements of fact and of blessing, of promise. They speak of different aspects of the nature of the kingdom of God, different ways that we can experience God the Father. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I'm always interested to see how these lists pan out and where they start. Starts with the poor in spirit, moves right into blessed are those who mourn. The Christian life, right? It's a, it's a mournful lamenting life. It isn't this way inherently. United to Christ as we are, we've got access to peace that transcends our understanding, right? Joy that reaches deeper than we recognize. Yet we're the church militant. You heard that phrase before? The church militant. We're the church at war. Warring against our own sin, our enemies, the devil, and this this present world. And so we have, unfortunately, many occasions to mourn. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, it's an interesting, interesting word. It's a challenging concept of what it means to be meek. The meek or the gentle have no power, yet God says their inheritance surpasses the richest person alive. These are the ones that Jesus is talking about who leave father and mother and brother and sister and home and lands and family for the gospel and are rewarded now a hundredfold, and in the next life, eternal life. Yet to live in meekness is a low way of living, isn't it? It's a lifestyle of trust and obedience and dependence on the Lord. Tough for us. We read the Beatitudes and we want to believe them. We, we do believe them, that, the, that the, those who mourn will be comforted, that those who are meek will inherit the earth. But they just seem like a way of life or a set of circumstances that just doesn't seem real. It seems like something that we'll have one day, but not today. Are the mournful really comforted? I mean, sure, we can think that in heaven, the absence of sin, there will be comfort, but here, isn't just one thing after another that keeps us on our knees, grieving, mourned? Do the meek really inherit anything in this life? Again, to be in Christ, united to Him, means that We'll inherit everything that He has earned for us in the next life. But what about now? 
Don't the powerful simply run over the meek time and time again, making meekness look kind of stupid, foolish even? These are important questions. Remember, now you can turn to Ruth, Ruth chapter 2. <laughs> the context of Ruth, remember, is the Lord safeguarding and even building His covenant people in the midst of what is the worst period in the time of God's people, worse even than the exile. Ruth tells us that all is not lost in the book of Judges, that God is loyal to His covenant. It's today that the Lord is calling us to actions consistent with the Beatitudes. It's today that the Lord rewards the mournful and the meek. It's not just in heaven. It would be an encouragement to us, wouldn't it? If we believe that if we lived beatitude-like lives now, that the Lord would bring His reward to us. Does it happen? That's the question. Well, we go, as I said, to the worst period in the history of God's people, and we find someone who is mournful, Naomi. We find someone who is meek, Ruth. And if we had two hours, we'd find someone who is merciful, and Boaz. Lord willing, we'll come back to him next week. So today we're going to focus on the two women. Ruth 2 gives us the beginning of this picture of Boaz, as I said, but we'll return to look at him more closely next week. But we're going to follow each of these two women, Ruth and Naomi, through the events of chapter 2 so that we can see that it's true. The mournful are comforted now in this life. The meek inherit now in this life. The question our text answers is is simply this, what should the mournful and the meek expect of God? What should they expect of Him? The Beatitudes answer that question, but let's let the story of Naomi and of Ruth fill it in for us. So let's let's read Ruth chapter 1 verse 19, and we're going to read all the way to the end of chapter 2. Ruth chapter 1. Verse 19, so the two of them, that is Ruth and Naomi, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of, this, of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. 
Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what she'd gleaned. It was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she'd gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she'd worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is, one, is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Ruth the Moabite said, beside, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until the, they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Thanks be to God. This is God's word. (laughs) I love that story. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we thank you for this story, uh, and we ask that you would bless us with it, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's look. As I mentioned, we're going to look at Naomi, and we're going to look at Ruth, and and we're going to step through the story, but we're not going to dwell in every detail, because what I want us to do is look closely at Naomi and at Ruth. So let's start with Naomi. Look at verse 19. The narrator writes, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? So the narrator, he finishes up this journey part of, uh, of their, uh, their walk. They finally arrived in Bethlehem. Now, it wouldn't have been obvious for people to come and go in Bethlehem normally. There were people who came and went all the time. But Naomi's arrival stirred the city. That word stirred is the same word that was used to describe the atmosphere in Bethlehem when Solomon was coronated. They were excited about his coronation. They were excited about Naomi's return. But it had been 10 years since they saw her. And so they asked this question, is this Naomi? Now, the question could have been some kind of like a shocked question. Is, this, is it truly Naomi? Relieved that she was returned, excited to see her again. 
But I think it's likely that the question was like, is that Naomi? As if they didn't recognize her or barely recognized her. She's endured profound loss, right? Her husband has died. Her sons have died. She has no heir. She's got this tag-along Moabite woman with her, and she's 10 years older. Profound grief and hardship and the journey all left a physical mark on Naomi, making her barely recognizable to her own people. But Naomi steps into that with this answer in verse 20, do not call me Naomi. At first, the way it reads, it's kind of this, please, please don't call me Naomi. Because you remember her word, her, her name means pleasant, princess, or beautiful. But as she, as she talks, what we find is this, this well of deep pain and emotion and bitterness just starts to spill out. She says, you must call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly to me. I went away full and empty. The Lord has brought me back. Why would you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me, the Almighty brought calamity upon me. It's clear. She's been stewing in her condition during her travels from the country of Moab. She just needed the right person to let it all out on. Rolling over it, over and over in her mind, she's come to conclude that it wasn't her circumstances, it wasn't Moab, it wasn't bad luck that was grieving her. It was the Lord. It was the Lord's providence. She clearly puts responsibility for her bitter condition upon Yahweh, the Almighty. She ties two theological truths together in this explanation. She highlights just by doing so how deep is her despair. Look at verse 20 again. Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Empty, the Lord has brought me back. The Lord witnesses against me. The Almighty has brought calamity. Do you see it? Almighty, Lord, Lord, Almighty. Almighty isn't the name, it's not a name of God, it's a title of God's. It's used to describe the Lord in His cosmic rulership. Uh, Shaddai is the word. Almighty is the one who, who sets kings in place and removes them, who adjusts the border of nations. He dispenses blessings and curses. She assigns the start and the end of her calamity to the Almighty the one whose will cannot be resisted. But in the middle, she, she makes it personal. The Lord has done this. Now that is God's covenant name, right? It's the name that he gave Moses so that Moses could go to the people and say and answer them when the people say, who is going to save us? Who is going to redeem us? Moses would say, Yahweh will redeem you because he cares for you. But Naomi doesn't speak of Yahweh's care but of his destructive actions. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has witnessed against me. Beloved, like Job, she's right. None other than the Lord, the Almighty God, has authored her plight. Naomi gets specific just about just how the Lord Almighty has come against her. Things the women would not have known right away, but would soon recognize. She says this, I went away full and empty. The Lord has brought me back. 
in her bitterness, remember, she did not recognize in Ruth hope, the kindness of the Lord, but she was only considering who she'd lost and who could blame her, right? Elimelech is dead. Her sons are dead. There's no heir. I left full. The Lord has brought me back empty. And if the Lord has done this, how can her name Naomi mean anything? In her mind, there's no objective reason to call her Naomi anymore. Mara. You know where that name comes from? When the Israelites are traveling through the wilderness, they didn't have many provisions, right? They went from place to place depending upon what the Lord would provide. Well, they're in the middle of the wilderness and they come upon the stream. Now, I've been in the wilderness, right? And maybe some of you have been camping or hiking. You get thirsty, you check your water, it's getting low. You come to a stream and you're like, a stream, this is exactly what I need. But you know, when the Israelites got to that stream, you know what they found? The water was bitter. They couldn't drink it. Now, can you imagine what the response would have been, right? That they would have been desperate for water. And then there's water, but they can't drink it. The bitterness, the anger, the anguish. Naomi's thinking of that to describe her experience now. I mean, that's, that's serious. But as we step through the narrative, though, we recognize that circumstances change. And, and so the story progresses. And so before we get to kind of the next phase of what happens to Naomi, I want to remind you of a couple of things as we look at the text. Number one, in verse 22, the narrator tells us that Ruth and Naomi settled into a family dwelling in Bethlehem. But he continues to highlight something important, something we'll come back to, that Ruth is a Moabite, that she's not Naomi's kin, that she's from Moab. Where else would Moabites be from? But they're from Moab. The narrator comes back to it over and over and over again. Don't forget, Ruth is from Moab. Where's Ruth from? Moab, exactly. But also that they returned and they did find, remember Naomi was in the field and she heard that the Lord had visited them. They did find when they got back, they were in the middle of the barley harvest, the beginning of the, uh, the harvest season, early or late March, early April. So secondly, look at verse, two, verse 1 of chapter 2. He inserts this note that he doesn't come back to for another chapter. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. All right, now look at verse 2. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Please let me go to the fields, and I will glean among the ears after him in whose sight I find favor. Naomi said to her, You must go, my daughter. So this is the first scene in Bethlehem, and unexpectedly, we see that Ruth has taken the initiative. Now, we'll look at how she does this in a moment, but it's important to see that the picture between Ruth and Naomi is very different. Ruth is taking the initiative to go and glean. Naomi is, is somewhat even aloof. She says, go, my daughter. Now, you can imagine the scene, the, the depth of Naomi's bitterness, the way that she described herself to the women. Ruth gets up and says, Naomi, I, may I please go and glean? And the best that Naomi could do is say, go, my daughter. In, in chapter 1, Naomi was in the field, right? That's where she heard that the Lord had visited them. In chapter 2, you would expect that Naomi would go to the field, but she doesn't. She's immobilized, settled in her grief, okay? So like the other characters, this story progressively affects a change in Naomi. The progress of the story in chapter 2 for, for Naomi is from empty and bitter to what? Full. And what does the Lord do for the, those who mourn? comforts them. So the scene picks up in verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19. Uh, Ruth returns 
from the field, she gives Naomi the leftover roasted grain that Boaz gave her to eat. That would have been a surprise. You go to a field to glean on the edges of the field. You don't come back with roasted grain. She shows her the roasted grain and this very large amount of barley she's gleaned. That's the equivalent of a very large bag of dog food, right? 30 to 50 pounds, this massive amount of barley that she's gleaned. Now look at verse 19. Listen to the change in Naomi. Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she worked. Ruth said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord who has not forsaken his steadfast love from the living and the dead. You see that? This is the same day. The same day that she could barely give Ruth permission to go glean. Now what's she doing? Now she's asking the Lord to bless the man. Naomi noticed a number of important things, that Ruth found a place to glean, a very significant place to glean. Now, Naomi must have wondered how on earth a foreign woman who was supposed to glean only on the edges of the field would come back with this big sack of barley. So she says, blessed be the man who took notice of you. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like revived faith. It sounds like the beginnings of hope. Who would bless this man but Yahweh himself, the same one who brought her back empty? She gets more specific after she finds that it's Boaz in verse 20. May he be blessed by the Lord. But then she does something that's remarkable. Now remember, we have to remember how she explained herself to the women when she arrived in the town. But now she says of the Lord, he has not forsaken his steadfast love from the living and the dead. Think about that for a moment. Think about where this day started for her. Can this be even close to what Naomi would have hoped could happen to her this day? Hasn't the Lord done even more than she could ask or think? But but there's more. The last thing she notices sets us up for the next chapter. But on its own, it must have been like cardiac arrest paddles for her soul. Right? She says, The man is kin to us. He's one of our redeemers. I imagine her looking at Ruth and and hearing Ruth say that it was Boaz in whose uh, field she gleaned, and, and Naomi just looking at her going, that man is kin to us. He is one of our redeemers. It's also interesting how she says that, right? Do you remember how she came back out of Moab? I went away full, but empty the Lord brought me back. What does she say now? This man is our kin. He's one of our redeemers. Beloved, the sun is now up on Naomi's hope. She sees Ruth now as God's gift and Boaz as God's comfort. Let me talk about two points of application here. First, beloved, if you've lived with the Lord for any number of days, you probably have had the chance to mourn. Mourn over your sin, mourn over the sins of others, over the fallenness and wickedness of this world. I do. You ever find that bitterness of soul that makes you want to tell someone, don't call me a Christian, call me forsaken? I have. If you put your faith in Christ, then you know the deep fissures that still exist in our souls 
those fissures that are often obvious in the world, if you've ever been cornered by lust or shame or anxiety or greed or anger and you've given in, you've drank the sinful Kool-Aid and on the other side, you're broken. You know mourning. But then something happens, right? Then an answer to a desperate prayer that you didn't expect. Or a, a perfect scripture text from a friend. Ever had those? Or a hug and, and, a, and a real knowing, comforting look. Or a line in a sermon that stuck. Or the taste of communion bread. Or a hymn that just washed over you unexpectedly. Or the worst case scenario doesn't happen. Or your your wayward child asks for prayer. Or you turn to a text in your devotions and it feels like sunshine. Beloved, what are those if not the comfort of the Lord? As with all of our tendencies to define what is hopeful to us, we often do the same with what's comfort to us, right? Let me ask you, would it have been right for Naomi to look at that big sack of barley and hear about Boaz and see the roasted grain in Ruth's hand and, and for her to say, the Lord has witnessed against me. Would that have been right? No, no. What she was looking at was the comfort of God to a mournful soul. So by the gentle working of the Lord's spirit, she testified of God's covenant loyalty. She said, the Lord has not forsaken his steadfast love from the living and the dead. And she doesn't know the half of it, right? Because we know the rest of the story. She recognized the comfort of the Lord. She saw in the small things, the roasted grain in Ruth's hand, and the big things, that the man is a redeemer. And she knew it was the Lord. The Lord didn't call out in an audible voice to her. He did something better. He demonstrated in ways that only he could that she was not alone. Beloved, look again at the ways in which God is keeping his promises to you. Ask, and if you can't see any, then ask a brother or a sister Ask an elder or a deacon, ask a life group leader, ask somebody to help you see what you might not be able to see, God's comfort in the big things and in the small things. But secondly, the process of going from mourning to comfort, that process is lamenting. Have you ever wondered what would have happened if Naomi didn't lament as she did in chapter 1? Remember what she said? Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Empty, the Lord has brought me back. The Lord has witnessed against me. The Almighty has brought calamity. What if instead of lamenting, she just complained? What if instead of connecting her circumstances to the providence of God, she just whined like the Israelites? You remember what that sounded like? Oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and all we have to look at is this manna. You remember that? Yeah. How did it go for them? Every single one of them over 20 dropped dead in the wilderness except Joshua and Caleb. Not a single one saw the promised land. No, beloved, complaining to the Lord, that's not a great choice. (laughs) Naomi lamented, And that lament, listen, that lament prepared her to see the comfort of God. 
She turned from her severe circumstances unto the Lord and said, these things are connected. And in some mysterious way that God makes with laments, she was then prepared to see in the roasted grain the comfort of the Lord. When you and I are able to take stock of our difficult circumstances, when we can look at them and we can grieve them and we can plead with God that He would change them, that we would work on our own to make them change, and when they don't, if we can appear before the Lord in prayer and we say some form of Thy will be done, beloved, then our souls are better prepared to receive the comfort of God than if we either ignored our circumstances or we complained about them. In other words, your difficult circumstances, those things that make you grieve and mourn and weep, are ultimately the providential circumstances ordered by the Lord Himself. A lament's a strange thing. It doesn't blame God but it assigns ultimate responsibility to God. And then it allows us to rest in what we know of God, right? That He is good and does good, Psalm 119. That all things work together for good for those who love the Lord, Romans 8. That He is our shepherd and we shall have no want, Psalm 23. That He is with us always to the end of the age, Matthew 28. Naomi was ready to be stunned by God with his comfort, because she lamented before God of her circumstances. Laments take our eyes off our circumstances and ourselves and place them on the Lord so that when he provides comfort, which he's promised, we can see it, receive it, and rest in it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What about the meek? Let's let's turn and focus on our dear sister Ruth. Look at verse 2 again. Ruth 2.2, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, please let me go to the fields and I will glean among the ears after him in whose sight I find favor. Please let me go to the fields and I will glean. This might have been the next day after they arrived. Ruth intended to make good on her commitment to love and serve Naomi. She asks Naomi if she could go. Isn't that interesting? She asked her. Why? Well, she was a Moabite. She was of the clan that was at odds and enemies with Israel. She didn't know if Naomi would be embarrassed if she left the house, if she would find a way to go and glean even. So she asked. Remember the greeting that Naomi gave to the women? That she was brought back empty. Perhaps Ruth was taking that to heart. And and so she asked Naomi if she could go to glean. Ruth the Moabite, again, the narrator uses that Again, five times that she's called this. The narrator already mentioned the time of the harvest. Harvest was a joyous time for all, including the poor and the downtrodden. Leviticus 19.9 says why. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip the vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor. Oh, scared me shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 19, 9. The corners of fields, the ends of fields, the grapes that remained on the vine, the olives that remained, and those that fell to the ground. Landowners couldn't even go back 
after the reapers to make sure they got everything. Those were for the poor. Now, this was the law. However, there were greedy or wicked landowners who might not allow this to happen. This is why Ruth says that she will reap only in fields where she's found favor. So the next part of the story, Ruth goes to the fields, and there's a series of conversations. The first one that Ruth has is with the supervisor. Boaz had appeared out of Bethlehem, and he inquired about the young woman. Look at verse 7. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The supervisor's description, right? She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. I mean, he doesn't miss words about Ruth. Now, Boaz, before you get any ideas, that's the young Moabite who, by the way, came out of Moab. (laughs) We find out why he might have described her this way as he tells Boaz about their conversations. Verse 7, she said, that is, Ruth said to this this, uh, supervisor, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's remained from morning until now. Now, this is a remarkable verse for a couple of reasons. Number one, she asked to glean and gather, not from the edges of the fields, but from the sheaves that the reapers made as they went along. Now, in other words, the reapers would, would cut and they would, they would have an armful and they would cut and they would add and they would leave them on the ground and the women behind them would come up and bind them together and take them to the threshing floor. Ruth was asking if she could glean from the piles that the reapers were leaving, not the edges of the fields. A Moabite woman requests to do what's in the spirit of the law, but not in the letter of the law. She wants more. Man, meekness isn't weakness, isn't it? She wants more. She's got two people to feed after all. Ruth isn't just interested in gleaning the corners after the reapers have passed because that was typically just subsistence level, barely making it. She wanted more, but she wasn't willing to do that without asking permission. So secondly, she was apparently refused to do this by the supervisor. So she stood there and she waited from morning until when Boaz showed up. That's why Boaz says, whose woman is this? Like she was standing right there. She left Naomi and she went to glean. By God's providence, she came to Boaz's field. Her intent was to glean among the sheaves rather than the edge of the field. She waited for some time for an answer. Now the man who was going to give her that decision was there. And the question is, we know the answer because we read the story. The question is, what will Boaz say? Verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. It's safe to say that Boaz granted her request and even more. Listen, my daughter. How has the narrator been describing Ruth? She's from Moab. What does Boaz say? Listen, my daughter. He treats her as if she's a true Israelite. He gives her four exhortations in answer to her request. Do not go to another field. Stay with his young women so that she knows where to glean. Do not fear the harvesters as as they've been warned. And fourth, do not go thirsty, but draw from the men's water. Not go draw your own water. The men drew the water. Go get some of that. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Her meekness is exemplified in her surprised response in verse 10. Look at it. She fell on her face, bowing down to the ground and said, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me as a foreigner? I mean, she didn't understand why Boaz responded so favorably to her request. I mean, he elevated her in part to be as a peer with the young women of Israel who were following behind the reapers. But she recognized that he's paid her very special attention, but is curious for the reason. It's important for us to recognize that although Ruth was courageous in her request, it was not her boldness that Boaz rewarded. Look at verse 11. It was her meekness in serving Naomi. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and your mother, your native land, and came to a people that you did not know before. He acknowledges that he's been fully told about everything that transpired between Ruth and Naomi. His was a reward for her meekness, her strong dedication to serving someone else rather than her own interests, including her own future. And he not only gave her physical provision, look what he says further, the Lord repay you for what you've done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. The Lord repay, that word means to make whole to fill what's been empty. He may be specifically talking about how she's been bereft of a husband and without an heir, that the Lord would make her full. He explains her actions of meekness have actually made God her debtor. That is, God's promise to reward the meek, and Boaz is asking the Lord to keep His promise. Just as it's written, Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him for his deed. Boaz recognized... Ruth's meekness sprung from her faith in the God of Israel. She's come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord. When we think of the concept of inheritance, we think of what family members receive of the estate of one one they love who has died, right? And of course that's right. But inheritances, aren't they gifts? Inheritances are gifts. We don't earn what passes to us. We only receive them by virtue of being related to the one who died, or even in some cases, not related, but favored and loved by the one who died. Listen to the gifts that Ruth received. And keep in mind, we started this thing by me saying, the meek inherit the earth now and in the future. Listen, listen to these gifts, these gifts that, that are tokens of her inheritance that she received, nine of them. She happened to find the field belonging to Boaz. The, the Hebrew is actually ridiculous. It says she chanced to chance upon his field, okay? So she happened to find the field that belonged to Boaz, number one. Number two, she found favor there and she could glean. Number three, she gleaned at a place with a man who was kin with her father-in-law. Number four, there was faith in that field. You remember how the, the, the reapers and Boaz greeted each other? There was faith found there. He's greeted by Boaz as my daughter. She's protected from danger by Boaz. She gleans this this big dog food bag size of barley. She eats roasted grain from the hand of Boaz. And she drinks from the water that she didn't have to draw. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Does God look with favor upon the meek? Yes. Is he attentive when the people of God don't pursue our own selfish interests but the interests of others? Yes. Does God mock or ignore those who utterly depend upon Him? No, of course not. Beloved, when we are meek, resolved but humble, committed but gentle, we will be rewarded by the Lord just as Ruth was. The Lord Jesus, the archetype of meekness, 
walk that path while on earth. Here's what Paul says about, about the results of his meek journey. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Beloved, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we are connected to Him. Branches grafted into the vine. To be connected to Him means that we are exalted with Him. When we leave father and mother and children and lands and riches for Him and the gospel, we are rewarded by Him. The reality of our reward is proved, you know how? By the supper He's given us to eat. So let's eat.